Peace and blessings be upon you. Welcome to the Ta'alif Podcast, a space where we aim to provide content and connect our spiritual hearts with community, love, service, and prophetic wisdom. Uh, this week, I have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Will Caldwell, who, you know, is a fellow teacher here at uh, Ta'alif. And we're going to be reviewing uh, verses uh, 9 through 15. Uh, from the poem, which are found on page six uh, in the book. But before doing that, I wanted to give Will an opportunity to, you know, introduce himself. Although I'm sure everyone is familiar with you, but you know, just yeah. in case they aren't. Yeah, assalamu alaikum, everyone. Uh, it's great to be here on a Tuesday night. Um, I a snowy Tuesday night. Very, yeah, very snowy. <laughs> Feeling very cozy, actually. Yes. Being inside every time it snows like this. Um, yeah, I am the convert care coordinator here at Tatleep. And I usually teach the Being Muslim class on Wednesday nights, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm very happy to be here tonight. Alhamdulillah. So last week, you know, we, we spoke a lot about this, this discipline, right? Uh, purification of the heart, uh, thinking about, you know, who we are uh, and centering our hearts, you know, thinking about the heart as kind of the, the center of our being and uh, the source from which our character grows, right? He begins this week saying, after that foundation is grasped, the next thing is mastering the heart's infirmities. And I thought, you know, mastering the heart's infirmities, um, you know, a lot of things come, come to mind, you know, um, but, I'm especially taken by the idea that my heart is sick, Mm -hmm. right? Um, You know, one of the uh, preconditions of being able to benefit from a book like this uh, and from a discipline like this is that you understand that you're in need of rectification. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think with social media, with some of the very selective ways that we choose our friends, um, we are engaged in like excessive self-congratulation, curating our realities for other people so that in many instances, we're obscured to our reality. So that for some people, the idea of having a sick heart might uh, be an affront to what they would like to believe about themselves. I mean, mean, I'm, I'm curious, how do you, this idea of knowing the, mastering the heart's infirmities, Knowing that the heart is sick, I mean, how, how does that expression strike you? Well, it, it strikes me as uh, a type of knowledge that demands uh, practical uh, measures be taken. Uh, you have to um, take what you learn in this book and apply it to your life. That is something that uh, I like, but I'm also unfamiliar with, Mm -hmm. professionally speaking, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, getting uh, my graduate degrees, it was all theoretical knowledge. Mm -hmm. And the idea that um, there is something that can be transformative Mm -hmm. about our knowledge uh, Mm -hmm. is something that certainly I believe, and uh, certainly at a personal level, I have always tried to realize and implement, but that, you know, it, it, in my life as a scholar, that, that has not been my modality. Mm-hmm. You know? And it, 
he talks about the shubuhat, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I think this is one that I deal with. Mm-hmm. Like, um, it's it's very easy for me to work up here, mm-hmm. and uh, more challenging to work down here. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so that that is something that that I deal with mm-hmm. as well, just just by nature of what I've spent most of my life doing mm-hmm. you know, in the academy. So, you know, I think often too that this is one of the great gifts of the Prophet so I said, um, um, to humanity is that we hold up the opportunity that they can change. That by 12 or something, you know, in terms of like, you know, formative experiences that you had, things that have really everything else is kind of, you know, uh, you know, based on those formative experiences. Whereas Islam actually says that the possibility of transformation is uh, not only realistic, but, um, you know, likely. Mm-hmm. If one adheres, you know, to this to this prophetic model, yeah, this is um, something that I heard Sheikh Noah Keller mention mm-hmm. once. You know, in response to a question about like, well, why do you Muslims believe what you believe? Uh, mm-hmm. And he said, "Well, because it works, um, mm-hmm. among other reasons. But you know, perhaps most um, immediately, it works. Mm-hmm. Like, Islam is a religion that really does rectify hearts, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and." Uh, this does come as a surprise to a lot of people that indeed mm-hmm. you can change. Mm-hmm. And that is, uh, you know, a lesson that I have always remembered. It's always stuck with me uh, because I've seen it in my own life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I had this experience after um, being Muslim for, I don't know, maybe a year or two. And uh, I was back at home visiting my, my family. And you know, I would still go out at night and see my friends. Mm-hmm. And I came in one night and my father, it was very late, but my father was still awake. And I walked into the kitchen where he was sitting and he was taking a hard look at me. Mm-hmm. And, and he came up to me and he grabbed me by the shoulders and looked me right in the eye. He was like examining me. Right. And, and he was looking to see if I was drunk. Mm-hmm. Basically. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had the pleasure of meeting him, Father, too. He's a very kind man. So. He is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mashallah. Um, <laughs> and he, he said, every time I've seen you come home at night, you've been sober. Uh, and this was the first time he ever had anything uh, positive to say about Islam that he initiated. Mm. You know, he said, this religion is really changing you for the better, isn't it? MashaAllah. Uh, and, I, you know, what could I do but, but smile? And, uh, you know, uh, it, but it had a profound effect on him, mm. just seeing it. It's amazing. You know, some people, you know, when talking about the miracles of the Prophet, mm. which actually are very important because uh, they say that, you know, in our usul uh, tradition or like the foundations of faith, they say that a messenger of God is one that is muayyad bil mu'ajizat. He's aided with miracles, mm-hmm. right? These uh, disturbances to the regular chain of events that show his divinely inspired, you know, status. 
And so a very interesting debate in the tradition ensues about what is the greatest miracle of the Prophet Now, of course, the most popular answer is the Quran. But some people say it's the companions. Mm. It's their transformation. It's, 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 it's them being able to, to, to point to what they were and what they became that could only be at the hands of a divinely inspired messenger. Mm-hmm. And so you hear stories about like Sayyidina Omar, and some people say these stories are fabrication. Uh, we have to kind of point that out at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. But I think the stories you know, serve, to my mind, the purpose of showing his transformation. That Sayyidina Omar would at intermittent times be seen in Medina, sometimes weeping and sometimes laughing. And uh, someone once, you know, mustered up the courage to ask him, why is it that we see you sometimes laughing, sometimes weeping? He said, well, when you see me laughing, it's because I had an idol that I used to worship that was made out of dates. And I would go and prostrate to this idol. But if I was hungry and no one was looking, I would, you know, take some of the idol and I would start eating it. And when I think about worshiping something that I used to consume, it's just, it's just, it's funny to me. What the heck, it makes me laugh. He said, but when you see me crying, it's because I had a daughter and I buried her alive. I took her out to the desert and I buried her. And uh, she was old enough so that when I was digging her grave and the sand was, 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 you know, popping up into my beard, she was attempting to remove the sand from my beard. Mm-hmm. And um, that someone like that once practiced female infanticide. And then toward the end of his life, it said about Sayyidina Omar that if an animal stumbled in the streets of Medina, like because the streets were not paved, when he was the Khalifa, when he was the leader of the community, he would fear God's retribution. He would fear being accountable before God if an animal stumbled in the street. This, you know, the transformation Right. That's why, you know, for me, I know some people say these are apocryphal stories that uh, some, uh, you know, uh, groups made up to disparage uh, Omar. But to me, the story speaks to his his transformation. Right. I mean, we're entering February. And of course, there will be a bevy of Malcolm X talks, you know, as is normally the case in February. But I think um, the thing about, you know, Malcolm's autobiography and I contend that Malcolm is a friend of God and his miracle is his autobiography. Mm. You know, I've met many different people from many different walks of life that have embraced Islam after reading the autobiography of Malcolm X. And whenever I ask them, what was it? Because I embraced Islam after reading the autobiography of Malcolm X. And when I say, what was it, man? What, what changed you? What, what resonated with you? What touched you? They always say his transformation mm-hmm. and his sincerity, right? You see this, this transformation of a human being, you know, in that book. The, it wasn't an event. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Omar trained mm-hmm. uh, significantly even after he became Khalifa. Mm-hmm. And uh, Malcolm's life, he, even though it was cut short, um, you know, shows that he, up to the point of his death, mm-hmm. he was going through a constant process of transformation Mm. and um as much as we lionize these figures now that that really helps us to relate to them and Mm -hmm. and to really ground who they were Mm -hmm. um because 
um, you know, they were great people, mm -hmm. but they were great because they never stopped changing. Absolutely. Right? Not because they became great at some point uh -huh. and then they, they had made it, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh -huh. That's not how it works for us humans. Um, and, and they showed that to us. Just, you know, this, you know, I, I was thinking, you know, some of my most foundational experiences with religious faith were about change. They were about transformation. You know, um, my family wasn't like uh, a fervent uh, Christian family. You know, I think that was kind of our um, inherited or kind of ancestral kind mm -hmm. of religious connection, somewhat, right? We had other connections as well, but we weren't like a, a real church going family. Um, but my father um, struggled with, you know, drug and alcohol abuse, you know, when I was younger. And I didn't see much of him, but sometimes he would say, come with me to my 12 step you know, meetings. Mm. And I would go with my father and I would watch as each person talked about belief in a higher power. Mm -hmm. You know, that was the first step of the 12 steps, you know, mm -hmm. belief in a higher power, belief in a higher power. And me being an inquisitive kid, I asked, I said, you know, why is everybody talking about a higher power? And my father, I'll never forget this. He said, because I know that left to my own devices, heroin has already overcome me. Mm. It has already overcome me. Mm. But I believe in a God that can redeem me. I believe in a God that my desire to serve that God is stronger than my desire to feel heroin course through my veins. Mm. You understand? Mm. And to believe that the belief that there is something otherworldly that is assisting me, aiding me, supporting me, raising me. This is the thing giving me the confidence that I can change, mm. you know? So it's, I think in our kind of self-help culture, we're obsessed with self-help. You know, one of the foundations of a book like this is that, no, no, you have to do work, but the help, the tofiq, it really comes from on high. Mm -hmm. You know, it really comes from on high, you know, that, that, that nasr, you know, that, that divine aid and being, being raised, being lifted. And I think that um, this is, this is a very important way that he enters the book. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I also come from a family that has many people who struggle with addiction mm -hmm. and I, you know, to reconnect it to the topic tonight of, of mm -hmm. the heart. Um, you know, as much as those addictions serve to be that, that thing that you use to cover over um, uh, that place in your heart that ought to be filled by Allah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you hear so many people talk about the experience of hitting rock bottom. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it, to me, it's always sounded like the experience of getting to the point where you can no longer cover over that hole in your heart. Mm. And you are forced to look at the fact that there is a higher power, mm -hmm. that if, if you are to climb out of this hole, mm -hmm. that there must be something higher mm -hmm. that can pull you up out of it mm -hmm. because you will not get out of it yourself. So, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, the next line that he says is that knowledge of the heart's infirmities what causes them, how to treat them, this knowledge is an obligation on everybody. 
This is something that we must do. And, you know, immediately I thought, coming into Islam, uh, that this was one of my, you know, it was my first encounter with like religious law. I, I had no, I had no concept of Sharia. I had no concept of do's, don'ts. I mean, I think as a Christian, my moral code was much more loose. You know, it's just, you know, be good. Don't, you know, don't, you know, pray, be good. Don't be harsh or uh, mean to anybody. Don't steal, you know, but I didn't have a concept of like, you know, when you, wash your hand to prepare for prayer. The water must submerge your entire hand and you have to wipe a fourth of your head. No, no, your entire head. And then behind you, that was just so foreign to me, but it was also very fascinating to me. You know, I think um, at that time, I was um, willingly uh, just, how can I put it? I was just uh, swimming in Akam and rulings. And it was, in a strange way, whereas I think a lot of my peers, because I was in high school, would have probably looked at this as kind of like a self-imposed, kind of very restrictive way of existing. It was liberating to me. It was like all of these like, do's and don'ts and halal and haram and makru, you know, lawful and unlawful and discouraged. Words that I didn't, were not connected to my morality at all, right? It was only much later that I learned that, yes, you have the halal and the haram, the lawful and the unlawful, but the knowledge of the heart states, you know, trying to rid oneself of greed, ridding oneself of selfishness, ridding oneself of arrogance, ridding oneself of unjustified hatred. These things are absolutely obligatory, absolutely wajib. Oddly enough though, we don't talk about them that way in our community. You know, in fact, a person can talk about all of those outward rulings and pay no attention at all to the heart. And I think this is a gross imbalance that I, that I hope this class will serve to, uh, you know, address. I agree. Uh, Sayyid Hussein Nasser has mm -hmm. a really fascinating observation uh, that, you know, if you go to learn about world religions, Mm -hmm. um, that if you study Hinduism or you mm -hmm. study Buddhism um, or Christianity for that matter, um, the first type of reading that you were likely to come across will be about the spirituality of those traditions. Mm -hmm. um, and people often get the impression that these traditions are all spirituality. Mm -hmm. um, but if you go and you pick up a book about Islam, uh, you are very likely to come across legal rulings, first mm -hmm. and foremost. Mm -hmm. um, and you may, in fact, never get to the point where you encounter Islam spirituality. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And he lays a lot of that at, at the feet of Orientalists, mm -hmm. um, you know, Western scholars who mm -hmm. portray Islam uh, to people in the West. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, I think we also tend to talk about Islam in this way. Yes. And, you know, Sheikh Hamza had a, a really, he provided a definition. And my mm. ears always perk up when I see definitions. Um, and I think it's, it's really beautiful. Uh, he says, one can say that Islam, in essence, is a program to restore purity and calm to the heart through the remembrance of God. And it's like... Yeah, 
Like, I think so, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like, what, I mean, why else are we here? Mm. And, and, and what are the rulings for, mm -hmm. if not to do that? Absolutely. And, you know, uh, as someone who works at Tatleaf and thinks about Dawa quite a bit, mm -hmm. um, that one sentence really struck me because mm -hmm. uh, it, it just made me realize, like, why aren't we presenting Islam to people in this way, first mm -hmm. and foremost? Absolutely. Like there is a priority, mm -hmm. right? And the mm -hmm. ahkam are important. Sure. Um, but they are in service to something. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And, and I think it's probably this mm -hmm. that they're in service to. It was interesting. Uh, there's that, you know, um, we pray, right? And, you know, we have these, um, you know, five daily, you know, when I give you these papers, it's never to say it's going great. <laughs> Uh, we have these five daily ritual prayers uh, that are mentioned in the hadith of the prophet, peace be upon us, the umuda, this is the pillar of, of faith. And yet, if one makes a mistake within those prayers, like you're making those prayers and you forget to bow, or you, you know, only do one prostration instead of two, at the end of your prayer, you can offer some additional prostrations and the prayer is still perfectly acceptable. Mm -hmm perfectly valid so that this is, uh, you know, an outward act, an act of ritual that is central to our practice of faith. And yet it does allow for some margin of error. You can make a mistake in it, mm -hmm. you know, and that, that mistake is seen as kind of an extension of your, your humanity. You know, even the prophet, peace be upon him, made mistakes while praying, mm -hmm. right? But he also said, Men Whoever has even an atom's weight of arrogance in their heart will not enter paradise. You see how much lower the margin of error right. allowed. And, in the Arabic language is, uh, and he said, is like the, some people translated as Adam. Mm -hmm. because it's the smallest thing imaginable. He's saying whoever has a scintilla of the smallest thing imaginable, worth of arrogance in their heart, will not inherit God's paradise. Mm -hmm. This is actually something we can't afford to make a mistake. I can pray. I can make a mistake. I can make two additional prostrations, prayers accepted. But if I am given to arrogance or conceit, I actually can't afford that mistake. Mm -hmm. You know, a man spoke of it and said, Ya Rasulullah, But a man loves that his clothes are very nice and that his shoes are nice. Is this, is this uh, what mm -hmm. you're referring to as arrogance? Because that's a, that's a common, when we think of people that are conceited, we think of people that are inordinately concerned with their appearance, you know, right? The prophet actually said, no. He said, Inna Allah jameel jamal. No, Allah is beautiful and he loves beauty. Mm -hmm. That's not what I'm talking about. He said, it's batrul haq wa nas. To reject truth when it's presented to you and to look down on other people. Mm -hmm. Right? That this is what, that's tantamount to arrogance. Right? That is arrogance. Right? If you look down, if you think there's someone that you're superior to, and I'm better than this person. This person doesn't deserve to share space with me. Mm -hmm. This person isn't on my level. 
that could, I mean, that could jeopardize one's place in the hereafter, right? Or a person that, you know, uh, rejects truth when it's presented to them. That, you know, I know this to be true, but I'm so arrogant that just to be seen as accepting something someone else is saying, I can't, you know, I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't bear it. You know, it's a very common uh, refrain in the Quran that when the messengers come to their respective populations, they say, Antum You're just a human being like me. Why would I accept something from you? That's arrogance. Mm -hmm. Who are you? You're human, I'm human. So you have an idea, I have ideas. I'm not accepting that. Like we can't afford to get this stuff wrong. So the fact that we're going to be talking about uh, this vital and essential knowledge mm -hmm. over the course of the next year, um, I think is really, really great. Man. So let me ask you a question. Um, what do you say to someone who hears that and feels demoralized? It's like not, not an atom's weight of arrogance. How am I ever going to get there? Mm. And, uh, you know, th this is something I've felt before, mm -hmm. right? Because the bar is so high mm -hmm. when it comes to matters of the heart. Mm -hmm. um, wh what do you say to someone who, who hears that and, you know, they're scared? Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, first off, I, I, I would say someone needs to write a little tract or a pamphlet or a leaflet about kind of the, the, the prophet's manner of speaking, his, his, his khitab, you know, mm -hmm. the prophet um, is a bashir and a nadir. He's a giver of glad tidings and he's a warner, right? His, his, his vocation in terms of his preaching is for tarheeb, right? To encourage and tarheeb to frighten. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, um, a good preacher usually is in between those two, you know, mm -hmm. encouragement and warning, you know, encouragement and warning, encouragement and warning. And so the Prophet والسلام, it is his um, absolute um, God-given duty to give us very um, potent, very strong reminders. Mm -hmm. Right, you know, very, very strong reminders. And that shows up in the language of the Prophet um, which is not, not to say that he's exaggerating. That's not what I mean. I mean that he's talking about, you know, it's, it's like, oh, okay, it's like this. My sister is a Muslim, alhamdulillah. Uh, my younger sister, but she loves tattoos. Mm -hmm. She loves tattoos. And I once uh, was talking to uh, my kids and they were asking me about TT's tattoos. Um, and could, you know, could they, could they get tattoos? Or, and I just mentioned uh, in passing, I said, you know, the Prophet ﷺ, he cursed the washam, the one who gives tattoos, and the moshum, the one who's tattooed. Um, and I just kind of, I was doing something and I kept going about my day, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So sure enough, you know, we went over to my sister's house. <laughs> yeah, you know. I already know that. Yeah. <laughs> went over to my sister's house and she's there and, you know, some of her tattoos are showing. And uh, maybe Najashi, my son, he said, auntie, you're cursed. <laughs> the, the prophet cursed you. <laughs> and the one who did your tattoos or so, something to that effect. And my, my sister turned and looked at me 
is this what you're telling your kids about me? I looked at, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. I said, you know, you're a great mother. You are very generous. You are uh, one of the um, most selfless people that I know. You're very resilient. Mm -hmm. You're very faithful. You know, I'm sure that when all of that is weighed against your tattoos, inshallah, no problem. Inshallah, no problem. But the Prophet وسلم, in this hadith is just isolating tattooing. Mm -hmm. He's isolating tattooing yeah. so that we can know of God's disapproval with it. Right? Yeah. And my sister was like, okay, I see what you're saying. I see, you know, I see, you know, so we can know of God's disapproval with it. He's just isolating it. Same thing here. He's isolating arrogance. Mm -hmm. Saying that, you know, because yes, all of us might feel like, man, I, I can never get there, but you have Iman, you're a faithful person, you know, and I'm sure that there are virtues that you do embody. Um, inshallah, those will be enough, right? And you're a part of the Ummah of the Prophet Muhammad That will be enough, inshallah, to make you an inheritor of God's paradise. But part of his vocation in preaching mm -hmm. is to isolate this thing, arrogance in this case, so that we can see how disagreeable, how uh, unbecoming it is of us, right? So it's not exaggerating or lying, but it's more like, selective isolation right whereas none of us is just a tattoo yeah or yeah. i'm just my adam's weight of arrogance mm -hmm. or i'm just you know and it's not that god is just judging me on that that one characteristic right that's the first thing uh, the second thing is that when it comes to matters of you know spirituality it's it's really about uh the the striving and not the destination. Mm -hmm. It's about where you want to be. You know, I remember once, uh, seems like a simple question, but it was actually quite a, a, a complicated one, you know, theologically. Someone said, you know, eternity. Eternity is a really long time. <laughs> I was actually in a class, mashallah, comes in there. I was actually in a class and someone said, you know, Sheikh, eternity is a, a really long time. It's like the Andre 3000, forever, forever, ever, forever, ever, you know. And he said, even if a disbeliever lived, you know, 100 years in disbelief, do you think the punishment fits the crime? Mm. That they would be made to experience punishment or torment or chastisement forever? What about just hundred years, you know, no, this is just, this yeah. is what I loved about kind of the, the intellectual climate of Azhar. Mm -hmm. You know, you have people asking questions like that in classical Arabic. What about just a you know, hundred years? I mean, he did something wrong for a hundred years. You know, it just seems, and I remember the Sheikh saying, actions are but by intentions. He said, you know, whenever someone raises a question like that, you also have to recognize that the reward of an eternal paradise doesn't fit the good deed either. Mm. That you did, you know, some very finite good deeds and you'll get paradise forever. No, he said, no, the intention of the believer is that if she were alive forever, she would want to serve and worship Allah forever. Mm. So she's being rewarded for that intention. Mm. And the intention of the believer is, of the disbeliever is opposite of that. 
And we pray for God's mercy for everybody. We pray for God's mercy for everybody. So here, it's if the intention is to rid myself of arrogance. Whether I succeed or not, it's the intention the teacher was saying. This is what God rewards. Mm-hmm. Right? I want, I actually want to be a person that is prophetic in my states. Mm-hmm. I actually want to be a person that um, doesn't look down on people, a person that can accept the truth when it's presented to me. And we pray that God will, you know, reward us on account of what we're striving toward, even if we never realize it. Yeah, I mean, I was um, studying in Jordan a few years ago, um, Mm -hmm. and we were reading through the Ihyar al-Madin, and um, I remember the the whole class just getting so demoralized going through the the diseases of the heart that Imam al-Ghazali enumerates. And we had to pause when we got to ostentation um, because he was talking about ostentation and religion, like, mm-hmm. you know, praying so that other people see you, mm-hmm. not for the sake of Allah. Mm-hmm. And he said that removing or even identifying ostentation within your heart is like seeing a black ant crawling on a black rock mm-hmm. at midnight on a moonless night. And at that point, like the teacher could see it on our faces because we were just all like, oh, like we're never, we're like, never, we're just not going to, we're, we're, we're not going to make it. Let's go hang up our hats right now. You it's know? Over. Yeah. Um, Hit the shower. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, he, he told us, he was like, look, um, Imam, Imam Al-Ghazali is showing you like how high the spiritual pursuit goes. Mm-hmm. And the point here is that you understand that this is a lifelong effort, mm-hmm. that you, you're not going to get this tomorrow. You're not going to get this next Ramadan, right? Mm-hmm. Like you have to keep striving mm-hmm. for it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have to keep looking mm-hmm. as if it was midnight on a moonless night mm-hmm. and you were looking for mm-hmm. that again. You, you have mm-hmm. to keep trying. Allah Akbar. Yeah. You know, it's probably a great segue to the next uh, couplet. He says, this is the ruling of Al-Ghazali. Hmm. However, in the opinion of um, uh, the, the writer of the poem, this does not apply to one who was already granted a sound heart. So it's interesting that Imam Maulud, uh, the writer of the poem, is saying that Ghazali's position is that everybody needs this science. Hmm. Everybody, without exception. And his own position is that, no, some people don't need this science because they're granted sound hearts. Now, I want to say two things here. I mean, one, you know, Imam Ghazali, you know, is one of those names that we hear all the time. You know, I, I, you know, I, I, would, I would say it's arguable. You know, maybe the most famous, one, certainly one of the most famous scholars, you know, in Islamic history, you know. And I think it's reasonable to assume that many new Muslims, people recommitting to Islam, people unfamiliar with the Islamic tradition, might be saying, wow, what is the big, you know, what is the big thing about Ghazali? And then even if you read a lot of Ghazali's works that have been translated into English, I think the, the kinds of works that English speakers want to read, um, they're very simple. Uh, they're very simple works. Um, lots of stories, lots of analogies. Some of his harder core kind of philosophical and legal uh, deep dives, you know, I don't think those interest, you know, English readers as much, right? 
Okay, here we go. Bismillah. You know, I can I can actually count from the when you give me the first one, I'm counting now. So you <laughs> well, I thought that one said you're doing a great job. No. No. <laughs> but you know, so, you know, and I think that like, you read this early. And you know, if someone is is faithful uh, in their translation to the style of Ghazali, you know, it's always accessible, especially those those works in, in in the latter stage of his career. And I could totally understand if you know someone new to Ghazali was thinking like, I mean, it's good, but I don't see the you know I don't, I don't what's the what's the big, uh, and I think it's hard for them to understand um, who Ghazali was. You know, we're talking about, you know, a time in which, you know, Islamic law was kind of like the study of economics is mm -hmm. in, in the U.S. now or in Europe now. You know, it was, you know, it was, it was the thing that gave you custodianship over, you know, uh, endowments. It gave you fame. It gave you, uh, you know, international, literally international repute it I mean it was you know Ghazali was that person mm -hmm. and so this this culture of like religious ostentation and money and recognition he had actually reached the height like he was he was in terms of in his you know academic you know uh, post at the Nivalmiya in Baghdad he you know he was like a, like a university professor at Harvard or like at Oxford you know mm -hmm. and he arrived to the conclusion on his own that all the fame, all the fortune, uh, all of the, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, pedantic books. Um, and I don't, I don't feel that it has really increased me in, in, my, in my devotion. Mm -hmm. It hasn't really increased me in my faith. So when people read Ghazali, they're reading a person who is the subject of the transformation that he's talking about. Right. Like I was that, you know, you see that guy out there trying to attract fame and fortune and that was me. Mm -hmm. And I was better than him at it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like he, he still had that, you know, you know, and I recognize the emptiness of all of that. And so he comes, so he takes a, you know, uh, and this is, I mean, I think it's someone that teaches um, and you're also a teacher. I mean, this is very, very, uh, you know, uh, admirable. 10 years, man. A 10 year sojourn, a 10 year sabbatical, a 10 year absence from public speaking teaching. Like, I just need to work on myself. Mm -hmm. A decade. You know, some of us think, like, I'm, I'm going to work on myself. We spend like a week, you know, I'm, I'm going to stay on social media for a week, you know, I'm going to stay on social media for two days, you right. know. 10 years. Yeah. Um, it's know, enough during, to get tenure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know and uh, in that time, you know, he, you know, he found, uh, you know, a, a uh, you know, a source of rejuvenation mm -hmm. and spending time with the people of spirituality. And they made him call into question his um, kind of singular reliance on all of this outward knowledge and this philosophy. And, and they taught him kind of this, this experiential side of knowing God. Mm -hmm. That it's not just about theory and postulates and there's an there's irfan, there's a knowing, there's a, like the soul's knowing. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, he gains access to that. 
then he comes back and he changes the focus of his his study. He changes the style of his writing, whereas his writing used to be very pedantic. And you know, like if you read El Mustafa, his book in legal theory, it's like, oh my God, it's so complex. It's I mean, it's it's enough to make your head explode. I mean, quite literally. And I was studying it once in preparation for a test. Just some excerpts from the book. It's way above me. Um, and I, I literally had to go to the hospital. This, this really happened to me. I literally had to go to the hospital, just, just straining my eyes. And, you know, uh, you'd read like a page of text. You'd have to read that page maybe 55 minutes, an hour, just to get the page. Just, I mean, that's how dense the language was. It was every, every line contained examples and counterexamples. It's just, just a crazy style of writing. He comes back, he's not writing like that. He's writing, I want everyone to be able to understand me because to the point of Imam Maulud, what I'm writing about now is not for the elite. It's not for books to be, you know, gilded and, and sat in the homes of princes and rulers. This is for everyone because everybody must know this, mm -hmm. right? So I think it's, it's interesting that Imam Ghazali's name, you know, tends to make its, its way into these kinds of works. No matter who's writing, where in the world, it could be a West African scholar, as in the case with Imam Maulu, could be a North African scholar, could be an Indonesian scholar, could be a Central Asian scholar, could be a Southeast Asian scholar. Ghazali has this place of, um, you know, of respect and veneration and honor, you know, in the hearts uh, of Muslims. And then the second thing uh, I wanted to say about this line is that you know, Imam Maulud is of the uh, position that some people are just blessed with good character, that they're not in need of kind of a formal study mm -hmm. uh, in terms of how to, to, you know, exercise, you know, the diseases of the heart because they just have pure hearts. And it's like, subhanAllah, you know, I, I certainly have, uh, you know, encountered people that I think fit that description. Yeah, it seems closer to lived reality. You, know, mm. you do need these people. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're amazing people. And, mm -hmm. and you transform by being in their presence. Mm -hmm. That's the beautiful thing about it. You know, if, if those people weren't out there, um, you know, I, I might wonder, like... Is, is, it, is, this, is this real? Yeah, right? Yeah. But no, you, you get to see it in some people. It's, it's amazing you say that. I remember um, I was uh, talking with one old school old school guy, you know, in, in Egypt. And somehow we started talking about atheism, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, he, he offered something very simple, but also very profound. He said, well, I mean, how can you expect these people to believe in something like a prophet? Many of them have never seen a friend of God. Mm -hmm. I said, wow. You know, and, and at that time, a lot of the atheist writers that I was reading you know, they did have this kind of misanthropic kind of attitude that like this idea that human beings could even be this kind of, you know, vessel for kind of an absolute truth just seems silly and, and facile to them. Like, that's so dumb, mm -hmm. right? And he said, my teacher said, I mean, many of them have never seen a friend of God. It's probably impossible to conceive of something like a prophet. I just thought to myself, man, we should really take it easy on people, man. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We yeah. should really take it easy on people, man. But when you meet people 
that, you know, um, you know, uh, have embodied some of what we're discussing in this book, I think it, it, it raises kind of the moral ceiling and also like that experiential knowledge of God's ceiling that you think, wow, that, that's possible. Mm-hmm. That like something like that really exists. You know, when you, when you get a chance to encounter those women and those men, mm-hmm. it's, really, it's really a tremendous thing. Yeah, I, I traveled a lot after mm-hmm. first saying my Shahada. Oh, and wow. uh, probably for two going on three years. And I, I was in a position where I was not making deep connections uh, with, with anyone, really. Mm. And the, the first couple of years of my Islam were, you know, uh, it felt like not much was sticking. Like I had this transformational experience, mm-hmm. right? Um, and thank God for that, that it was transformational because I had something to hang on to. But it wasn't until I came back to America, settled down, uh, in one place for a couple of years and actually got to be in a community uh, of Muslims. And I was in the community of Imam Khaled Latif in New York City. And really like so much just fell into place mm-hmm. with that experience um, because I saw everything that I wanted to learn and practice, mm-hmm. right? And you just become a sponge in the mm-hmm. presence of people like that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, everything that feels difficult to implement on your own suddenly mm-hmm. becomes very easy because you see them do it effortlessly mm-hmm. and it's like mm-hmm. okay i see the path right mm-hmm. you know and and this is i think the knowledge of the heart mm-hmm. right like all, all of these things that you can read in the book um they might just sit up here mm-hmm. they, they might um but when your heart comes into contact with another heart it becomes very easy to learn. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's, I mean, part of the reason I, I, I almost like, you know, feel the sense of like inadequacy as a teacher, even, mm-hmm. you know, I, I just, you know, think like my poor students, <laughs> you, know, um, you know, there's, there's great people out there mm-hmm. and um, you know, you, you can uh, rectify so much of yourself by being mm-hmm. in their presence. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's a piece of knowledge that I encourage people to cling to, even if they haven't experienced it themselves, mm-hmm. and to seek out those types of people, mm-hmm. um, because you'll learn more. Uh, you'll them. learn more from their silence than you will from my speech. Yeah. I, and, I, and I don't say that in this kind of, oh, you know, woe is me, I'm so, no. I'm, I'm, I'm being as um, serious yeah. um, as, I can, as I can be. Because you've seen it, you've experienced it. There are people that you will learn more from their silence than you will from my speech. And I say that um, unapologetically. You know, there are people like that. They're just watching them. You know, I, there's, there's people like that in Chicago. <laughs> you, know, I, yeah. I, you know, I remember once, you know, I don't want to give away the secret. Because, you know, it might be crowded. I might not be able to get in, you know. But, you know, Sheikh Mohammed Imam, you know, at the Chicago Islamic Center, you know, 63rd and Holman, if people in Chicago can make their way over to to sit with him, mm-hmm. to, to uh, have him smile at them, you know, to spend some time with him, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes just being with him is transformational. Mm-hmm. You know, just such a simple man, you know, lives at the masjid, lives in a little 
compartment at the ministry. His family is from Alexandria. He goes back to visit his family just once every year, right? He's there in the ministry leading prayers, teaching. He's been doing that in Chicago for, you know, a very long time. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, he's just, a, he just, he's a remarkable person. You know, I remember once one story about Sheikh Mohammed, who's actually living here in Chicago. There was one brother who was, you know, had taken some very strong positions with regard to how he practiced, you know, Islam, his men had, right? And Sheikh Muhammad is a Shafi'i Shaykh, you know? So he was praying Dua Qunut in, in the dawn prayer, you know, at, you know, this, this, this interval of the prayer between the, the, the prostrating and the standing straight up from bowing, he had raised his hands to, you know, make an invocation to pray, which is something acceptable in the Shafi'i school. And after the prayer, the brother berated Sheikh Muhammad. That's a bid'ah, you know, there's, a, there's another group of Muslims that don't believe in the validity of the practice. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, that's a bid'ah and this, that, and the third, and, you know, you have to learn the sunnah and this. And Sheikh Muhammad just looked at him and he smiled and he said, look, if I'm doing something that's a bid'ah, I, I, I want to know. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know I, I absolutely want to know, but I, I invite you, when can you come and spend a day with me? Because mm. if you pointed this thing out to me, I want to know maybe there's other things I'm doing. That, you know, <laughs> this is the thing. And he was serious. Mm. Maybe there's other things I'm doing that are also a violation of the sunnah. Mm. He said, can you, can, you, can you devote a day to spend with me to show me more? And the brother said, yeah, I, I, I'll do that. He said, okay, well, I, I start at 3 a.m. That's, that's when I start my day. So you got to be here at the masjid at 3 a.m. The brother came, he was at the masjid. Sheikh Muhammad was praying Qiyamulayah. <laughs> then as people started coming in for Fajr, Sheikh Muhammad was there with his warm, smiling face, greeting them coming in. Then, you know, he, he prayed Fajr. Out of respect for the brother, he did not do Qunut. Then afterward, he gave a class. He gave a class. Then he's talking to people all the way up until almost like the time of 10, 10, 10, 30. Then he takes a little, you know, he lays down for a bit. Then he gets back up, does duhr, you know, talks to people, maybe takes a little short nap. Asr, Maghrib, whole day just service teaching, service teaching. He gets to Isha and he asks the brother, now tell me, what did you see in my practice that needs correction like you saw in the Fajr prayer the other day? At this point, that brother was crying. Mm. And he said, I've never seen anyone who lives more like the Prophet than you. Transformed. Yeah. Transformed. Yeah. You know, and you have people like that that they're around. Mm -hmm. You know. But I think our time has expired. Okay. Um, just for the sake of there's there's a mirror, mashallah. So I want to at least finish finish out the lines of the poem, inshallah. Um, this is the ruling of Al-Ghazali. However, this does not apply to one who was already granted a sound heart. As scholars other than Ghazali opine, for Al-Ghazali reckoned that the heart's illnesses are inherent to humanity. Oh, Al-Ghazali reckoned that the heart's illnesses are inherent to humanity. Others deem them predominant in man, not qualities necessarily inherent to his nature. 
but know that obliteration of these diseases until no trace remains is beyond the capacity of human beings. Do your part. So don't feel bad. Don't feel bad. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. So yes, Amir, I guess we can open now for some Q&A, inshallah, if anybody has any questions. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. If you have a question, please put it in the Q and A um, chat um, in the bottom. In the bottom, inshallah. If you have a question, please put it in the uh, bottom in the Q and A session section. Mashallah, thanks, man. It's good. To, you know, it's, it's 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 like when we talk usually. Yeah. <laughs> Just another Tuesday for us. Just another Tuesday. Anyone has questions, comments? Inshallah, please put them down if you have any. What do you make of this weather, man? I actually thought we were getting off with a with an easy one this winter. We're still getting off easy. Yeah. You know, one snow. And we're almost to February. Yeah, it's, it's pretty good. It's pretty easy. Yeah, so far so good. There's actually something nice about shoveling snow as long as you don't have to do it too often. <laughs> you know, it's it's a nice chance to be outside, get a little exercise. No, I actually, you know, um, you know, I, if you live um, in a a wooded area. The snow is always very beautiful. It's always been very beautiful to me. Mm -hmm. If if you know you're stuck in the house, you've been quarantining, and to take a nice leisurely drive, mm -hmm. um, going out in nature, as everything is covered in this blanket of snow, mm -hmm. it's it's that's it's a it's a very beautiful, a very refreshing uh, feeling. Yeah, in the city too. Uh -huh. uh, one of the things I love about snow is that it muffles sound. Uh -huh. And the city actually quiets down a lot. I'm lost. And I love that. It's well, being from Georgia, you would. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the only thing that we have is uh, someone said, Assalamu alaikum. Um, I'm from I Canada. Hear, I can't hear you. Man. They said, Assalamu alaikum. I'm from Canada. Uh, I can't pronounce it, but they're from Canada. Uh, and just wanted to thank you for your time and uh, beautiful discussion. There's there's no one else posting any questions, so I think you can end or end can I say something to your students. Yeah, uh, it, it's a great mercy upon your teachers to ask questions uh, because we don't have to guess what it is that you're thinking and what you're wondering about. Uh, when you don't ask questions, we have to sort of think. Well, maybe. I was unclear on this point or, uh -huh. you know, maybe it raised this question. And then we're probably just speaking to something that you aren't even wondering about. So it's, uh, it's a great mercy upon your teacher. So please have mercy upon your teacher. It's good adab with the other students in the class as well, mm -hmm. because you may questions. be asking a question that they have, but they're being too shy to ask. So since I'm a guest here, I'm just going to lecture your students a little bit. <laughs> no, you know, whenever, whenever, um, I, I, I'm teaching and I ask if there are any questions and there aren't any. I'm always thinking, okay, either I did a very, very bad job or a very good job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and usually I'm probably thinking the former, you know, I've done a very bad job and people are just like, 
you know, I, I think that, you know, um, either it's like, okay, it was very clear. You know, it was very clear. It's like what you were saying was, was pretty clear. Or, you know, you feel as though you fail to, to, to stimulate interest in the topic, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Because usually questions are an indication that, okay, someone is actually interested in, in, in what we're talking about. But, you know, it goes both ways. Sometimes it, it, it is, I think, I think your comments and I were very clear. Um, we have one person said uh, off topic, but I often wonder how do we know if we are or are not Jin? Jin. I don't know. <laughs> you know, whoever says I don't know, God will will expand their knowledge. Um, hmm. I don't know. It's a good. It's a good question. I hope I'm a human being, but I, you know, but but wallahi, I can't. Um, hmm. Do other humans recognize you as human? No, I mean, I don't, you know, or do other jinn recognize you as being a jinn? I don't, I don't know. Can you recap on um, the moral of the today's class? Uh, since some of us came in late. Excuse me. Can you recap? Excuse me. Can you re- recap? I have dry mouth. Uh, can you recap on the moral of today's class? Uh, since some of us came in late. Well, he's still in the kind of the, the introduction. And this was uh, Imam Maulud's uh, second, I guess, stanza or second section of the, of the poem. Um, and he's mostly talking about this science being an obligation. Like, you know, the knowledge of the heart this is something you must know, right? And we started by talking about um, the great uh, transformative power of Islam and um, how that's a great gift, you know, for people seeking change to know that this actually works. And uh, Dr. Will uh, gave a beautiful anecdote from Sheikh Noor, Hamim Keller. Uh, someone asked, you know, how do we know that this religion is real? Well, because it works. And so that um, in a sense, not, not necessarily my class or this book, but in Islam, you know, if you're seeking change, you're definitely in the right place. You know, you're definitely, you know, you're definitely looking in the right place. And for a lot of us that want change um, and maybe have had a few abortive attempts to experience some change, that should give our heart some, some consolation, some rest that, okay, it's possible and I'm looking for it in the right place. And I think that's a, that's a lot of what we talked about today. Another question. Uh, so even though we are trying our best to purify our hearts, are you saying uh, we will not get rid of everything? Not sure if I'm saying it right. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that his, the last line was that to remove all of these diseases, to the point that they are without a trace in your heart is beyond the capacity of, of most people. Um, so, you know, there are certain, um, you know, you know uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, Allah glorified and exalted says, that human beings have been created weak. So certain weaknesses we have these weaknesses are just inherent to the human condition. So, you know, for instance, um, anxiety. 
So even though you believe in God, you know that God is in control, you offer willing, voluntary submission to God. You know, if you see something that uh, looks as though it might jeopardize your safety or your security, you may feel some anxiety about that. That does not mean that you don't have faith. It just means that you're human. I'm a human being. Even though anxiety about one's provision or health or safety is mentioned as a disease of the heart, that if you if you if you're worried about you know God um, um, providing for you, you know they say that doubt in the provision is doubt in the provider. That is a disease of the heart, but it's, I mean, who, who, can, who can, you know, say that they have absolutely transcended that? You know, very few people, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing, you know, very few people, I'm guessing. Our next question is, if you're... You can, you can jump in. If you... Would you like to add to that, uh, Will? Well, I, w- I was reflecting that, you know, the, this can be a source of humility for us. Mm. The fact that we can't overcome all of the diseases of our hearts um, that we may very well um, remain in a humbler state, mm-hmm. which is ultimately better for us mm-hmm. uh, if we are aware of our shortcomings. Sure. And that perhaps one of the most beneficial things to come out of this is that um, you know, we are aware that we have diseases of the heart mm-hmm. and that we can identify them. Mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that we are able to fixate our gaze upon them. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And that will show us that Allah is lo- our Lord. Mm-hmm. We are not the lords of ourselves. Absolutely. So that, you know, no one walks away from this kind of class uh, assuming that, you know, I'm cured. You know, I've done it. I've overcome the diseases of the heart. I'm, uh, I've, I've attained a state of complete, you know, uh, wellness or, no, this is something we're constantly, you know, struggling to, to, to realize. Next question is, if you are a rationalist, uh, it can sometimes be difficult to connect with esoteric spiritual matters. How can we relate to these types of topics of these matters of the heart? Hmm. If you're a rationalist, hmm. Hmm. I'm I'm unsure how to how to answer that question. I think that um, you know, whenever one invokes uh, reason or rationale, you know, usually they're not talking about reason or rationale. You know, in an abstract sense. They're talking about a particular concretization of reason or, or rationale. So that, you know, for me, um, I don't think that being aware of my mortality and being aware of, you know, um, life containing some kind of ultimate purpose, right? Some kind of tell us. Um, being aware um, of my accountability, you know, none of that strikes me as unreasonable. 
for me, maybe for someone else, you know, it, it, it might not exactly be empirical. It might not be something I can demonstrate uh, scientifically, meaning, you know, um, that's, you know, natural science is not the kind of mode of cognition that one is using when addressing those matters. But I don't think it's unreasonable. If, if that makes any any sense, but I think we often speak about reason and rationale, uh, and you know that which is falsifiable, empirical, as though they're the same thing. Whereas I think philosophically they're not the same thing. So that that's that's one thing I would say about that. Uh, another thing that I would say about that, because I, I had two things that came to mind. That was one, is that. You know, connecting with with spirituality, I think is a is a kind of a full time uh, activity. You know, I think that many of us do lead quiet lives of secularism. I think we have a we have a context. You know, if we are modern uh, Americans, we have a, a secularizing, some would even say atheizing, you know, context in which we live. And then I think the expectation or maybe the hope is that we can come to a class on Tuesday night and connect with like some esoteric spirituality when it's, it's like perhaps we haven't even, we're not living in ways that prime us to benefit from a class on kind of, you know, um, you know the spiritual or God or faith or religion. And I think that if we did more regularly and sometimes doing more regularly is not just about praying. It's like Will and I were saying, you know, a quiet walk in nature. Sometimes it's uh, trying to express more gratitude for one's relationships. Sometimes it's serving other people, right? Which, which you know, charity, you know, is, is one of the most spiritual things that one could ever do. Because everything... Uh, about what we're supposed to be in our raw kind of self-concerned animalistic nature is upended by charity. You say that, you know, this has nothing, there's no practical benefit here for me, but I want to do something for someone else. It, it imbues one with kind of a, you know, a spiritual realization. So I think doing more things like that, you open yourself you know, to spirituality. Um, so yeah, those two things. Is there something that you would add to that? I would just say, you know, the heart isn't a metaphor. Um, the Prophet Sallallahu said that there is a piece of flesh in, mm -hmm. uh, in our breast. And if it is sound, then the whole body is sound. Um, and, you know, we understand that there is a greater reality to that piece of flesh than just the piece of flesh that mm -hmm. we may see. Um, but, you know, I, I would say, actually get in touch with what is right here. Um, and what I mean is, uh, you know, this is something I realized about myself. Um, when I say the Fatiha in prayer, um, you know, I, I'm... I'm actually talking from up here, right? Um, like the, the sort of like the center of my consciousness, where I imagine it to be and the place where I understand myself to be speaking from and praying from is up here by default, mm -hmm. right? 
um, I find that it's a completely different experience saying the Fatiha or doing some sort of dhikr. If I actually speak from the heart, mm-hmm. and I, I don't mean that metaphorically, I, you know, we talk about speaking from the heart as like, you know, being sincere. I mean, no, really, like speak from the heart. Try mm-hmm. it. See if it has an effect on you. And if, mm-hmm. you know, that if you are uh, able to encounter uh, some new meaning or some new reality by doing that, Mm-hmm. Wow. MashaAllah. I think I'm, I think I'm going to try that when I play Isha. <laughs> I want to, try to, to speak from the heart. Mm-hmm. Very good. Mm-hmm. Um, next question is uh, What is an example of an illness of the heart today's, in today's society, slash technology, and et cetera? Um, I think ostentation. Is a big one showing off. Um, you know, we we have you know an enhanced ability to show off. <laughs> you know, you know. I mean, it used to be, you know, just showing off for the people in your midst. You know, in your town or your locality or <laughs> um, house or something like that. But now you can show off for the entire world. You know, it's 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 um, you know it's. You know, I mean, I mean, Shakespeare's famous statement that the world is a stage has has actually come true. <laughs> you know, the, the world is a stage, and I think that um, you know, trying to find you know sincerity in moments of um, self-realization in 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 that um, you know uh, very um, challenging kind of mixture of influences is is extremely difficult you know i remember once you know being on a bus in egypt i was on my way to recite um, for one of my teachers and i looked to my left and i saw a woman that was probably wearing like a short sleeved uh, shirt and she wasn't wearing a headscarf or anything like that and she was looking out of the window of the bus and just very quietly, just making dhikr, just remembering Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And I remember thinking to myself that like, it's morning, right? The sun, the sun was rising and we're all on this bus, you know, headed off, you know, for our daily task, whatever. And she's remembering God. And it didn't appear, I mean, I didn't, I didn't speak to the woman, but you know, at this point, she was really just my muse, right? I didn't, I don't know what she was thinking, but it seemed like it was faith, but not necessarily a religious identity. And I looked at myself, you know, I'm in Egypt and I'm kind of like, I have this kind of like, you know, I am religious, I'm mutadayan, like I'm a, I'm a man of faith and I'm a student of the tradition. And, and I, and I, at that moment, I realized that just being from America, so much of my pursuit is like image driven. And I mean that not in a shallow way, but like I, I have this very externalized kind of view of myself that like I'm a religious Muslim. I'm a Sunni Muslim that's upholding the tradition. You know, sometimes <laughs> I laugh because, you know, sometimes when you listen to, you know, like some Muslims, the way that you know, this very grandiose ways in which we talk about ourselves, you know, 
if you just take a step back, it'll make you laugh. You know, mm-hmm. like uh, we're reviving the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad alayhi salam. And I just think all of that, at least she appeared. I didn't speak to her. I think a lot of that would have been lost on her. If you, if a person came to her with a microphone and said, are you trying to reinvigorate Islamic spirituality? <laughs> are, you, are you, it's like the Forrest Gump, are you, are you running for world peace? <laughs> you know, I, just, I just thought I would take a run. <laughs> you know, are you running for world peace? Are you trying to invigorate Islamic spirituality? Is this act that you're engaged in on this bus a, a concerted attempt to beat back the excesses of Wahhabism? <laughs> you know, I think she would have just said, I'm on my way to work and I just I was remembering a lot. You know, I mean, you know, and I and in that moment, I, I, I wanted that that purity. You know, I wanted that, you know, that 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 purity. And I think we just live in a context that makes that very difficult, you know. Yeah. Would you like to add Dr. Caldwell? Remind me of the question. Um, what is an example of an illness of the heart in today's society, technology, etc.? cetera? Uh, well, certainly Obedullah's answer is, uh, is accurate. Um, and I, I would say anger. Mm-hmm. You know, anger is uh, a big one. Um, something that I feel we're seeing more of lately. Um, I, I was an Uber driver for three years and, you know, the road is like, it's like the final frontier of our nafs. It's like, it, it, <laughs> it, it, if, if you're an angry person, it will come out on the road. And um, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, it's the one place you can go and like uh, just really sort of be, Darwinian with your fellow human beings. Absolutely. And in um, complete anonymity. Nobody knows you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we act as if like, yeah, like that that Porsche just cut me off. Not the same. <laughs> but like it's like there, there's no face there. Uh, and, and it's easy to hide behind. It's easy to let go of, of whatever is sort of Oh, yeah. lurking underneath mm-hmm. uh, so yeah I, I would say anger uh, I see a lot of mm-hmm. it I uh, have seen a lot of it over the past few years but you know what Will it's interesting when I, I remember um, what's that oh you know someone once said that um, your character is made up of those things about you that don't change according to circumstance mm. right and, you know, we would see a person, um, you know, like engage in like some like active road rage, you know, flick somebody off or, you know, yell out the window, or, you know, some other angry gesture. And the thing that always shocked me is that, you know, you might look at a person like that and think that, you know, they need like an anger management class or like clearly, you know, rage and, and, and unrestrained anger is like, like a part of their character. But these same people with like face-to-face encounters, they don't respond. Like if you bump into them on the street or you step on their shoe, mm-hmm. they're actually very, oh no, it's no problem, man. Mm-hmm. You know, it's no, no, don't worry about it. You know, it's, all, it's cool, you know. But with some distance and anonymity in the car and 
the fear of, of, of real confrontation somewhat removed, mm -hmm. something else just comes out. So I, you know, I often wonder too, is it, is it a place of great cowardice as well? Meaning like, if you really were just that angry a person, then even in, at your workplace, if somebody you know, spilled coffee on your favorite shirt, you would you know, curse them out, but you don't do that. Mm -hmm. you're, you're actually quite clement. You're actually quite forgiving. Oh man, it's cool though, yeah. I mean, why are you like that? Why are you like that in the car? I've never, I've, for the life of me, I've, I've never been able to understand that. Yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting point. Um, it's probably some combination of the fact that you don't have to look into another human face. Mm. Uh, also knowing that your face is obscured. So <laughs> it's, it's like, you know, you feel, maybe you feel a little more authentic uh, wearing a mask. Yeah, exactly, exactly, um, <laughs> exactly. You know, it's like maybe. Yeah, and I think you also know this is gonna, you know, because I, you know, I, I I've, I've been uh, like, you know, people have like cursed me out, only to stop at a stoplight, then they won't look at me. Mm -hmm. You know, you mother, and we put stop line. <laughs> you know, I'm like, nah, I don't know, man. I, I just, hey, man, look, man. If you, if you, if you're a person that. Um, is forgiving, be forgiving, man. It's not, it's not the same way you would if somebody bumped into you on the street. You wouldn't, you wouldn't curse them out. Why are you doing it in the car? <laughs> it's like that's a coward to me. I don't look. I don't want to. I want to be polite here, but just be a coward, man. You know what I'm saying? You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't do that if you bumped into me on the street. So why are you doing it in the car? Yeah. Yeah, come on, man. Um, a question, uh, well, a comment, uh, just a comment. May Allah bless you both for coming out in the snow today to deliver the most needed lesson. May Allah grant you all safe passages home to your family. And then also I have a question. Um, uh, would you also say that a lack of empathy and mercy is an illness of the heart today? Yeah, uh, major, man. Um, you know, it's interesting, man. You know, it's, I read a, a statement by um, Roy Amara, the American futurist. He said that technologies are always overestimated in the short term and underestimated in the long term. So in the short term, people think they're gonna do much more than they actually do. And in the long term, they end up doing much more than people could anticipate. And uh, I think, you know, we live in a world now that everybody is able to see and comment on everybody else, but nobody can see themselves. It's weird, man. You know, it's, I mean, like uh, how many forums, how many platforms do we need for people to humiliate each other? For people to embarrass you. Now you got the clubhouse joint. You know, I mean, you know, I, I mean, I, no, and it's nothing against, I mean, these are tools. Sometimes people, are, um, I'd assume some people are having very worthwhile and useful conversations in their clubhouse groups. You know, I, I, I um, my wife was in some room and I just heard somebody just talking so crazy to somebody else because they disagree with them about whether or not continental African uh, actors should play African-American heroes. Yes, you know, um, Daniel Kalua is playing Fred Hampton. And somebody said, well, you know, kind of, I guess they disagreed with, with, with uh, I guess the, the official position of the room is that he should not be playing Fred Hampton. 
And then there was somebody from London, you know, who disagreed. I mean, they talk so crazy to the you mother. <laughs> and I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm like, man, we, we talk about, we talk about movies here, right? <laughs> I'm like, you know, but it knows about representation. And, you know, and I'm just like, where, where has our just Rahma? Where, I mean, even if you disagree and you think that, you know, this was a role for an African-American actor, that one would be able to express their disagreement with some mercy and even some identification with, you know, the point, the counterpoint. I just think that we're, we're engaged in a lot of uh, exchange and public conversation that just intentionally erodes, you know, that kind of mercy and empathy, man. <laughs> you know, it's, it's sometimes striking to me, man. You know, it's striking to me. It's like, and I, I, I don't want to get in any trouble, man, but I, I see so many people, a lot of people that I respect, that I actually know to be very decent, respectful, um, forgiving, understanding people. But like when they go online, the personality just becomes something else. <laughs> you know, you know I, I see people, I'm like, that's not him. That, that's not, that cannot be him. You know, I'm looking at like some comment. And I'm just like, I see him the next day. He's at the office, you know. So I'm like, you know, I'm like, dude, what, what's going on here, man? That even the gentlest, kindest people get online and they cursing people out. It is, it's nuts, man. It's nuts, bro. So yeah, I think, I think um, the the absence and disappearance of of mercy, of 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 edip, of, of of manners, of civics, man. Yeah, I think these are all, you know, manifestations or symptoms of diseases in our hearts, man. And this is the last question for the night, inshallah. Shadam, uh, do you deal with others on wanted low nefs, unclean hearts, energies uh, being projected on you without being angry with them? And God, because uh, you've worked on yourself and it's not fair. Would you like that? Would you like for me to read it again? Could you please? Yes. Saddam, how do you deal with others on wanted low nefs, unclean uh, heart energy being projected on you without being angry with them and God? Because you've worked on yourself and it's not fair. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. You know, when you, when you encounter somebody whose state is that, you know, it, it, it actually provides you a moment to just thank God that your state is something other than that, you know, and, and, and also too, I think this is a, a, a place that, you know, we have to have some empathy, man. You know, it's almost like um, being in a room with someone who um, is concerned that you're ridiculing or mocking them when you wouldn't, or that, you know, you are uh, trying to intentionally humiliate them when maybe that, that just isn't your, you know, intent. And, you know, they say that, you know, the pitcher, like, you know, can only spill out what's in it. You know, uh, when we were growing up, you know, our parents used to say, takes one to know one, mm-hmm. you know. And I think, you know, you think about those kinds of very simple kinds of, you know, moral statements. And we think, okay, that's just something you tell kids. But no, these are, these are axiomatic truths, you know, so that if you think this is what I'm doing, it's probably because... This is 
how you think these situations go. Maybe because you, you know, I've, I've actually met people that in their innocence, they didn't even know that people were trying to make fun of them because they wouldn't, they wouldn't do something like that. It's like, wait, he was, he was making fun of me? I was, I was pouring my heart out to this guy. He was, he was, he was ridiculing me because like they really wouldn't like, I don't even have a, a, a context in which you do something like that. So I just thought what he was doing was strange, but I didn't know he was ridiculing me. Right. And I think that, you know, a person like that um, should see themselves as, as, as blessed, man. Um, and preferred, you know, um, you know, in a, in a very, you know, valuable, you know, way. Um, and, you know, uh, I guess in conclusion, just try to have mercy, man. Try to have mercy, you know, try to have mercy. You know, there are people that uh, have been exposed to human, you know, depravity in ways that, you know, when they look, that's all they see, you know. That's all they see, you know, it's like, uh, and it's, and it's, you know, this is really the last thing. And one wonders, you know, well, if that's how you see me and clearly that's how you see you, uh, maybe it's because they haven't been exposed to those people. How, like, like we're saying mm-hmm. that of, of, of clear demonstrable, you know, faith, um, and goodwill. You know what I'm saying? Um, and then it could be that the person looks, you know, through that lens because they want an excuse, you know, for their own mess. You know, uh, I think some people, it's just like some people rejoice at the missteps of religious people. Ah, I told you they, they were all hypocrites. I told, I told you, I told you, I told you. Because this continues to give them, you know, kind of some, some room to, to not strive to improve their states. Allah knows best. Alhamdulillah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Wal-Asr. Inna l-insana lafi khusr. Inna l-ladhina amanu wa amilu salihati wa tawasu bil-haqqi wa tawasu bil-sabr. Amin ya Rabbil Alameen. Thank you for tuning in. Please consider becoming a monthly sustainer by joining 1,000 Hearts of Ta'lif and committing to give $3 a day to keep this work coming to seekers, youth, and newcomers to Islam. Sign up today at www.ta'leefcollective.org forward slash donate. We hope you enjoyed the variety of sessions available and hope you benefit immensely. Allah bless you and Allah bless your loved ones.